0: So uh, I have a message today that is focused towards our baptismal candidates more. Um, it is a message that's that's relevant to everyone here, but uh, especially to our baptismal candidates. Um, and some of it will probably be familiar. Um. But I felt that this message is it is uh beneficial to to our baptismal candidates and to everyone here. It's it's a reminder that we live in a day and age where um people are thinking that um it's just live and let live and the way that I am is the way that I am, and uh, life is supposed to be easy, and uh, everything is supposed to go well for me. I entitled I, uh, it, Counting the Cost and Carrying the Cross. That's the title of the message, Counting the Cost and Carrying the Cross. But Before we begin, let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful today again for your presence in our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, who is in heaven. And we know, Father, that your plans, Lord Jesus, are still to prosper us. We just want to continue to pray that your work in us again will continue, that you will not give up on us, but that you will help us to have spiritual eyes to see is going on around us, within us. Lord, we want to be ever um, conscious of this work. Give us, Lord, spiritual eyes and help us to remove any blinders that we have, Father, any rose-colored glasses that we may be wearing. Lord, because we know, Father, that your desire is to conform us into your image and into your character because we know Lord Jesus when we stand before you on that great day Lord we will be only what we have given up and what we have taken from you Lord Jesus we just pray a blessing over words over what is being shared today we pray in Jesus name Amen I want to begin with a passage uh, in the Old Testament. It's found in 2 Samuel, chapter 24, verses 18 to 25. Um, I'll be reading the ESV version. So, uh, a story about David. It goes like this. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arauna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And Araunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you the king said to Araunah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So again, this theme of counting the cost and carrying the cross. It is interesting that Arana offered David everything that he needed make the appropriate sacrifice. But David wouldn't do it. He wouldn't accept it. It seems that even back then, a sacrifice meant more than just a burned offering. And like today, uh, today, I wonder if we try to offer things at times that don't mean much to us. We can be very obedient about offering the things that are easy or convenient for us. And through that, a lot of times we think we are sacrificing. But Sacrifice means a lot more than that. It's a very real commitment. And it's made because we love. If you think about a person that you love most, if you're going to surprise that person on a special occasion, what would you do? You'd go through the time and the effort to make sure that everything is perfect, like a perfect meal, a perfect gift, or whatever it took to make it special. And it wouldn't matter so much what it costs in time or money if it's some, somebody that you really care about. And in the same way, if you look at this account, David couldn't honor his God with a sacrifice that cost him nothing. I think he felt that <clears throat> it wasn't a gift worth giving if it's given that way. So some of the things that we do give to God are sometimes a broken heart and a contrite spirit. We offer them to God and maybe they cost us something. Not monetarily. And even when we bring these things to God, it shouldn't necessarily bring us pain. But it should be valuable to us when we give it. The commitment that we make must be deep and true. We can't just give God the leftovers and feel that he should be satisfied with that. It's it's like I said, if you're thinking of giving something to your to someone that you care a lot about, imagine their response if you just give them the leftovers, it's something that didn't really cost you anything. It's, uh, that's not, I don't think it's a gift that's worth giving in that case. So, carrying the cross, counting the cost, uh, we're all familiar with comment cards. Sometimes at restaurants, they, they lay out these cards and you make comments on them. And uh, there's, there's a place um, that where these comment cards were given to staff members in a wilderness area in Wyoming. And uh, some of them said, Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. Please pave the trails. Also, chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to the wonderful views without having to hike to them. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals escalators would help on the steep uphill sections and too many rocks in the mountains. So they're humorous, but obviously comments and complaints indicate that the people who made them did not really understand what it means to be or to stay in a wilderness area. They were looking for something convenient and comfortable, but not truly a wilderness experience. And in a similar way, many people today do not understand what it means to be a genuine Christian, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. There are multitudes that often follow Christ who claim or say they're a Christian, but they do so on their terms. And not his. They do not truly comprehend the biblical definition of discipleship or sonship. And in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27, Jesus said unto his disciples If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited? if He shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. This is very real. It's not something that he just said just to say it. Not I, but Christ. We sing these songs a lot of times that have these these, uh, phrases in it. Not I, but Christ. But a lot of times it could be I, not Christ. In a lot of instances in our lives, this comes out. I, not Christ. A disciple is a pupil or apprentice, a learner or student. That's what it means. But a disciple can be taught knowledge without being transformed. I think you would agree. A disciple can be taught knowledge without being transformed. And uh, we have to be careful That our disciple-making is not information without transformation. The end result of discipleship is not merely the knowledge of all Jesus commanded, but the obedience to all Jesus commanded us to do. That's, That's obviously the bottom line. If you don't implement the commands of Christ in your life, then it's basically meaningless. I don't think that's what Christ had in mind. It's not the truth we know that transforms us, but the truth we, we obey. And I think you, could, you will agree that not all discipleship is transformational. I have a short uh, story here of a, of a guy, if you think on those things. Chris Farley is regarded by the world as one of the funniest comedians. From his sketches on Saturday Night Live to the movies he starred in, Farley was a success in the entertainment business. Chris Farley was impacted by the example and influence of another famous comedian, John Belushi. In a real sense, Farley was a disciple of Belushi. Farley famously admitted, I wanted to be like him in every way. So John Belushi moved from the comedy troupe Second City in in Chicago to Saturday Night Live to starring in movies, and Farley followed the same career path. Farley's emulations did not stop there. Both Belushi and Farley struggled with obesity and had a reputation for wild living. Sadly, Belushi died of a drug overdose when he was only 33 years old. And years later, after a night of partying, Chris Farley was found dead in his apartment from a drug overdose. He was 33 years old as well. While his mentor impacted his aspirations and his behavior, his mentor never transformed his heart. Not all discipleship is transformational. So there's this verse in 2 Timothy Verse chap- chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Always learning and never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you can learn a lot of things, even spiritual things. But what's the use if you never come to the knowledge of the truth? And this is very clearly illustrated in the life of Judas Iscariot. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 to 25, it says, When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for the man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. So we also ask this question. But from Judas, we learn that knowledge about Christ alone does not result in true discipleship. Because obviously Jesus, uh, Judas knew about Jesus. Judas heard every sermon that Jesus preached. Judas personally saw Jesus confront the religious and welcome sinners. Judas saw blinded eyes open. Judas saw the dead raised. Judas saw demons cast out. Judas saw firsthand the power and the love of God perfectly displayed in Christ. Judas gleaned knowledge from Jesus' teaching, but never allowed Jesus' teaching to transform him. That's very evident in his life, is that he walked with the Son of God, with God in the flesh, and listened everything he had to say, and it never transformed him. It never transformed his heart. He had probably all the knowledge up here, and he probably went out even and uh, shared the gospel with people. And he probably did miracles as well. But it never did anything to his heart. A.W. Tozer said this, I warn you, you will not get help from him In that way, for the Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe on a half Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He would not be who he is if he saved us and called us and chose us without the understanding that he can also guide and control our lives. So a true disciple is one that has heard the knowledge, the gospel, and is convicted of their sin, and as a result repents of their sin and surrenders to Christ's lordship. The character of true um, discipline is manifested in obedience. So a person that approaches discipleship as merely information and not repentance is devaluing discipleship, and denies the power of the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So, the distinguishing marks of true discipleship, I think, can also be said is holy affections. Like Brother John said, abiding in Christ. The supreme proof of true conversion is holy affection, a zeal for holy things, Longing after God, longing after holiness, a desire for purity. And in this day and age, it sadly seems that the word, the word holiness, it gives a bad, uh, a bad rap as you could say. That is for a stuck-up, um, legalistic people, holiness. That's for the do-gooders. The holy affections, a zeal for holy things, a longing after God, a longing after holiness and a desire for purity. Is it evident in our lives? The distinguishing mark of Christian discipleship is a transformed heart, transformed affections. When someone becomes a true disciple, Christ radically changes the person's appetite If this didn't happen in your life, then there's something wrong. And that's the bottom line. It's when you come to Christ, the the only thing that he does to us is transform us. He transforms us from, from people of darkness to people of light. There was this recent survey that was taken. Conducted to learn more about people's spiritual lives and levels of maturity. And there were eight biblical factors consistently showed up in the life of maturing of a maturing believer. And there were number one, Bible engagement. Number two, obeying God and denying self. Number three, serving God and others. Number four, sharing Christ. Number five, exercising faith. Number six, seeking God. Number seven, building relationships. Number eight, unashamed transparency and uh, I know it's it's uh we we might not hit all of those things exactly on the head if we look at our our, our lives and our spiritual um progress but the thing is what you have to ask yourself is the desire there for these things if the desire is not there that's the first thing we have to be honest about is saying Lord this is not this is not in me I don't have this desire please change it that's the first thing it's it's on here unashamed transparency so Second Corinthians 5:15, it says, "And he died for all that those who live should, no, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again." First Peter chapter four, verses two to four, it says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, in lust, in drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And that's what is meant when we're speaking of transforming a person from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He's saying when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and, and abominable idolatries. They, those things are in the past. We're done with those things. If you're a child of God, you have a, uh, you hate those things, an aversion to those, to those uh, sins. So the question is, How would you characterize or describe your relationship with Christ? Is he just information that we have in our heads? Can we parrot out the right answers when people ask us questions? So a lot of times when a person speaks on spiritual matters, you get a sense that he or she is simply speaking from head knowledge. And it's simply information. And I think it's wrong to believe that just because we have the knowledge of the word of God, that somehow we're now in right standing with God. If the knowledge in our heads is disconnected from obedience and our daily testimony, then people simply tune you out or they, they notice that is, it is not true. Even if you have something to say, it carries little weight because of the lack of change that we've allowed the word of God to do on our own hearts and character. And I use the analogy of it's kind of like an overweight person giving you information on diets and weight loss. It doesn't connect as well as it should if you can't see the fruits in their own lives, it's it's just the way it is. It it's just it's like it goes in one ear and out the other. Now I'm not saying that you can't learn from people, but it's obviously evident that if these things that we're teaching are not evident in our own lives, then it will not bear fruit in other people's lives as well. So And God is also not a vending machine for all our wants. He's not someone that says you're fine the way you are. And uh, if you want to think of yourself as a Christian and disciple and all that it entails, it will most likely demand sacrifice and self-denial in the quest to get to know more of him. Because we know we have an enemy. We have an enemy. We know that enemy is. He's simply out to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And his constant temptations that he puts before us is to take back what we've given up and to reclaim what we have renounced and forsaken. Anyway, it is in my life. And it's especially tempting to compromise our commitment when we feel the cost is becoming too high, when we feel that we're going to be losing too much. But I've learned from, from experience or from, from watching other people that those, those people that have not fully surrendered when they came to Christ, that didn't fully surrender everything, I mean everything, that they were involved in whatever it is, and confessed everything. It's, that's a hook for the devil to come in and to use it against us. And he does use it against us. Believe it. It is, I have not seen it, something coming. I have you come to Christ and in repentance, but you, you don't want to let go of this thing here. Believe me, it's going to come back to abide you. No question about it. So discipleship is on God's terms, just as coming to him is on his terms. We don't make the terms, and it is gaining by losing, gaining by losing. This denial means to yield to Christ's control so completely that self has no rights whatsoever. And I use this this scripture here in Philippians that Paul wrote to the Philippians, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Or in some translations it says, dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, our heart to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, which practicing faith, practicing faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. He put little value on what he had been before. And uh, I think you can see from what he had written his total dependency on Christ. And he took up that cross and he followed after Christ. And believe me, one time he goes through this list of what he suffered, it was pretty difficult. So that's exactly the kind of denial a believer is to make in regard to himself. He is to utterly disown himself, to refuse to acknowledge the self of the old man. The self to which Jesus refers is not one's personal identity as a distinct individual. The self which Jesus is speaking is rather the sinful, rebellious, self-sufficient self. It, that is at the center of every fallen person, and that can even reclaim control over a Christian is where we, we fall into this trap of somehow thinking that we are you could say um by our own righteousness, somehow God is we're more accepted in God's sight. It is simply this practicing of faith in our daily lives and this obedience to his commandments and this dependence on Christ that make us acceptable in his sight. We cannot fall prey to our own righteousness and thinking that the the things that we do somehow make us more acceptable in God's sight, like being at church, for instance. If you think about it again, if you think back on Judas Iscariot, he was at church a lot, and he still missed it. I have some examples of dying to self and uh, to claims that we have on ourselves. Dying to self is when your evil is spoken of, when your wishes are ignored, your advice disregarded, your opinion ridiculed, and you still refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself. Take it all in patient, loving silence, because Christ says the truth will set you free. Dying to self is when you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus did. Dying to self is when you're content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God. Dying to self is when you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or itch after commendation when you can truly love to be unknown and seek to see Christ glorified in yourself and in others. Dying to self is when you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and you are in um, similar circumstances as well, or in desperate circumstances. Dying to self is when you can receive correction and reprove from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart. Dying to self is when you are forgotten, neglected, or purposely set at nothing and you don't sting or hurt with the oversight but your heart is content being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Now, a lot of people, when you read through this, they may think, well, what about all the wrongdoing that's going on here? What do we do with that? We're called to call out the wrongdoing. Yes, we are. But why do we want to call out the wrongdoing? Is it for revenge? Is it to simply get back at at people that uh, do these things to us to return the medicine that they gave us. Christ did call out the wrongdoing of others around him. But he also, he also, a lot of times there was heaps of abuse were heaped on him continuously People called him the Prince of the Devils and all sorts of different things and he went to the cross as a as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't defend himself so Our salvation and discipleship—it's—it's it's a free gift. It's a free our salvation is a free gift, but again, it comes at a great cost. It has come at a great cost for Christ, and uh, it's uh, when we sign up for these things. He is continuously telling us in the Word of God to count the cost before we start building. That it is it is a shame for people to start building a house and then halfway through they quit and walk away. That's not something that he finds um, that Christ finds joy in. And it, it not only ruins our testimony, but it also, the, 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 uh, the things of God are being mocked and laughed at by others um, that look at it in the world. And they say, well, if that's, if that's supposed to be Christianity, then I don't want it. So taking up the cross, it's not necessarily the common trials and hardships that all people experience sometimes in life it's not having a uh, a nagging wife or an overbearing boss or a physical handicap or suffering from a disease and uh, we often hear this phrase well that's just a cross that i have to bear but to the thing is it is to take up one's cross is simply to be willing to pay any price for christ's sake it's the willingness to endure shame embarrassment reproach, rejection, and even persecution for his namesake. I tried to find a different story to read, but um, I've read this story before, but um I'll just I'll just read it again. It's have all heard of the uh this book called the Insanity of God. Um, this author Nick Ripkin went around to different countries finding people that were under um Going through difficult, difficult things in their lives, or basically persecution. So, we met with this, this uh, brother called Dimitri. And I just want you, as you read this story, I just want you to, to just listen and to understand or to think about what I just shared that to take up one's cross is simply to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. Just a willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, and even persecution. So, as Nick heard the story, he asked how Dimitri had stayed faithful to the Lord during all those years. I think it was 17 years. Dimitri told him of two disciples or disciplines he learned from his father. He said, without those two uh, disciplines, his faith would not have survived. First, he rose every morning at dawn and stood at attention beside his bed in that prison. As the sun rose, he would face east, raise his hands in praise to God, and sing what he called his heart song. The other prisoners didn't like it and would yell at him, mock him, and throw things at him to try to make him stop. Every morning, year after year, he would sing one of two songs. Second, whenever he found a little scrap of paper, he would write on it as many verses or songs as possible. Then he would stick it to the wall in his cell. The guards would eventually find this paper and tear it down, beating him terribly and threatening him with death. But Dimitri never stopped. Determined to make Dimitri give up his faith, the guards broke into his house and stole his wife's clothes and they marched a female prisoner past his cell, telling him it was his wife. They tortured and killed the woman and told him it was his fault. Furthermore, they lied, saying Dmitri's sons were now wards of the state. When Dmitri heard this, he broke. He told his guards that he would sign the confession, stating he didn't believe in Jesus anymore. He felt awful, but though he needed to do this, he felt awful but thought he needed to do this in order to save his boys. The guards were triumphant and told him the next day they would have the paper ready. Drowning in grief, Dimitri was crushed. Not only did he believe his wife was killed, but he also realized that he had denied Jesus. As he wept, many miles away, Dimitri's wife, sons, and brother sensed something was wrong. They came together that night and asked God to help Dimitri stand strong. Miraculously, God allowed Demetri to hear the voices of his his loved ones as they prayed. Shocked, he realized God was showing him that they were alive and they were still following Jesus. He also realized that even after denying him like Peter the Apostle did, Jesus had shown him mercy. That night, Demetri experienced the love and forgiveness of his Savior in a new way. The next morning when the guards came with the document, Dimitri sat with his shoulders straight and strengthened his eyes. He refused to sign. Confused, they asked him why he had changed his mind. You lied to me, he said. I know that my wife is alive and my children are with her. I also know that they are still following Christ. I am not signing anything. A little while later, Dimitri was delighted to find a whole sheet of paper on the ground with a pencil right next to it. God put it there for me, he told Nick. He rushed back to his cell and wrote out as many verses and songs he could fit on the paper. He knew it was foolish, but he couldn't help it. He wanted to offer Jesus the biggest love offering he could. When the guards found the paper, they were furious and beat him and threatened to execute him. As they dragged him from his cell through the corridor to the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Suddenly, 1,500 men stood up next to their beds. They raised their arms to heaven and began to sing. The song they had heard every morning for 17 years now echoed out from every cell. Dimitri said it sounded like the most glorious choir in all of human history. He immediately the guards let go of him and stepped away in terror. One of them asked, who are you? Dimitri stood as tall as he could and said, I am a son of the living God and Jesus is his name. The guards immediately put him back in his cell and left him. Not long afterwards, he was released and found his way back home where he was reunited with his family. So I know most of us, or a lot of us, will probably never suffer for our faith as Dimitri did. But we may be suffering in different ways, whatever it is health crises or death of loved ones, wayward children, strained marriages, strained relationships, church struggles, financial difficulties, loneliness, depression. They oftentimes seem to torture us to the point that we think we might break. Yet, hopefully every day, and sometimes with voices that others must strain to hear, we also lift our heart song to God. And uh, we may not sing aloud, although sometimes we do. Most days those around us hear our songs through our actions and our words as we go through these things. We continue to pray. We refuse to lose hope. We serve God despite our heartache. We, we, We proclaim His goodness to anyone who will listen. And we continue to carry the cross that we have been called to carry. And we place our hand in that nail-scarred hand of Christ and we declare with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So, to the people of Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, the picture of the cross, it was a very vivid reality. They saw a lot of people hanging on crosses. Christ does not call disciples to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous, but to make them holy and productive. Willingness to take up his cross is the mark of a true disciple. why the cross? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in death. So as you contemplate baptism, there's one thing you have to understand. You better have already counted the cross or the cost. Because from what we've understood about baptism, don't be surprised if the spiritual battles increase rather than decrease. Don't, be, don't uh, think that it's going to be easier after baptism. It normally isn't. And though we are not killed with physical pain or torture, we are a lot of times killed with other things, which is pleasure and ease. And those are tools just as effective in the devil's hand to kill a Christian's witness as torture and pain is. And either way causes us to become complacent, ineffective, and unfruitful. So in closing, I want to read this, this uh, short uh, devotional by A W. Tozer. And uh, he said this a few years ago or whenever, maybe decades even. He says, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial and differences fundamental. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears and blood. The new cross brings laughter. He continues, any objection to carrying on of our present gold-calf lukewarm Christianity has met with the triumphant reply, but we are winning them. And winning them to what? to true discipleship, to cross-carrying, to self-denial, to separation from the world, to crucifixion of the flesh, to holy living, to nobility of character, to despising of the world's treasures, to self-discipline, to love of God, to total commitment to Christ. And a lot of these answers you have to say no. This pleasant new cross view often leaves people confused and deceived because they believe in self-promoting, self-seeking Christianity that bears no resemblance to Jesus' sobering call to full surrender, to denying to self. For this reason, it's been said that one of the greatest mission fields in the world today is the church as a whole in America. In our zeal to lead people to Christ, many paint a false picture of discipleship or water it down altogether. Jesus didn't say, follow me and you won't have to change anything. He said, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus wants us to understand what's involved when we follow him. There is a cost. The cross cost him and it will cost us. If current statistics hold true, many will continue to embrace a glamorized Christianity be led astray. Life is a battleground, not a playground. So it doesn't mean we go around now as dour Christians, just always looking for things that will hurt us and things that we know. It simply means that we're under a submission of Christ. We are no longer our own And like I said here previously, that we are, our willingness is to do, is to bear anything that Christ puts on us or calls us to do. And whatever that may be, we're simply saying, Lord, I'll go where you tell me to go, I'll do what you tell me to do, and I'll just follow after you at, at any cost. And uh, in the end, we know what is waiting for us. It's like what Paul said. I've, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course or the race. And therefore, there is now... Um, set up for me a crown of righteousness, and not only for me, but for all of those that also call Christ his own, in a way. I mean, uh, to that extent or something. But anyway, it's not an easy thing. I know that. We fail a lot in many things. But we have to understand again. The cross will cost us. It is. It's not really a plaything. It brings tears and it brings hardships into our lives, but they're all meant for something good. Something good to come out of us. So uh, thank you. God bless you.